Welcome to episode 183 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest for an interview, Richard Danzig, senior advisor to the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab and former secretary of the Navy and a uh, um, consistently deep thinker about technology and national security. We'll be talking about his uh, most recent work in the field. Uh, I'm also joined for the news roundup uh, by Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Michael, welcome. Good to be here. Uh, also by Brian Egan, a step-toe partner in our international uh, uh, practice and former uh, State Department legal advisor, uh, Brian. Good to have you here. Thanks. And uh, Paul Rosenzweig, uh, the founder of Red Branch Consulting, former deputy for policy at DHS, uh, I, and uh, uh, in fact, my deputy uh, at, at DHS. Uh, Paul, it's great to have you here. Great, and holder of the record for most frequent guest on your program. So you suggested, so that was not not entirely uh, unself-interested that you suggested that people who come in frequently, in, in addition to getting a mug, ought to get a Stuart Baker bobblehead? Absolutely. I'm looking to add to my collection. Okay. I I, I think that's perfectly fair. Uh, I, and uh, uh, for those holding up the left lib uh, uh, side of the spectrum, we'll provide them with that plus a hammer. Uh, okay. And I'm Stuart Baker, uh, uh, soon to be uh, uh, of bobblehead fame. We finally found the my metier in mm-hmm. the media. I really have a face built for a bobblehead. Uh, I and uh, holding the record for returning to the step to practice law more times than any other lawyer. We ought to jump in because there's a lot to cover. Uh, the House Judiciary <coughs> Committee has struck the first blow in the 702 renewal debate, getting out front of in front of everybody else with um, a, a document so that they can say, we have to do something, this is something, we have to do this. Uh, and uh, uh, they're getting... They're getting some pushback from people in the House, particularly uh, House Intelligence, which has its own ideas. Uh, even um, uh, the ranking minority member uh, in uh, House Intelligence has his own ideas. Uh, um, but uh, the bill itself, uh, uh, Paul, did you take a look at what the principal elements of the bill are? Yes. Well, I, I would actually say that it is a surprisingly modest reform effort. Uh, I should add, by the way, before going into details, that I have absolutely zero expectation that it will become law. Right. Um, what will happen is that they will over with a uh, a date change in the omnibus. You heard it here first, or maybe not first, but that's what will happen. Um, but as for the proposal itself, really strikingly uh, moderate in tone, uh, essentially, uh, to begin with, uh, if you are – if the government is conducting legitimate foreign intelligence investigation, counterintelligence investigation, game it's over, essentially right? game over. No, no changes at all. The entire focus of – uh, the reform, such as it is, is the idea of putting additional restrictions on the FBI when it is conducting uh, non-counterintelligence criminal investigations of um, of 
matters unrelated to And they to want them. to go back and search through And they want to go back and search through previously files. collected information and the, and this will uh begin to impo- begin the process of imposing some form of probable cause requirement. Um to be honest with you, it'll be a modest re-erection of the wall, the benighted mm-hmm. wall idea, and so more the curb. Than yeah, the wall, more the right? more a curb than a wall. And so I wouldn't really be overly impressed with it uh, on that ground, but it will be only a curb, right? And relatively easy to uh, get over. And and surprisingly um, modest in terms of its impact even on the FBI because all the counterintelligence stuff will be uh, uh that's that that counterintelligence uh, is a foreign uh, intelligence uh, um, uh, justification so the it's only when it's what you might call a uh, criminal criminal yeah case. criminal i mean if if they want to, if if the FBI took it into its head to say let's search the 702 to see if this drug lord in Baltimore has any you know has any stuff that we can pull out they can't do that now willy-nilly. And the problem, of course, is if they want to do just a search that searches everything, they're going to be dropping into the 702. Uh, right. They're going to, it's so, going to be a databasing problem right. for, and, for the FBI, if anything. Which, as we've seen with the NSA, um, <clears throat> you may think you can do it. You may think you can uh, uh, set it uh, uh Wall it off, and you'll discover later, to your chagrin and the that FISA court's uh, anger, that you didn't quite do it right. That's right, and that's and that's the other major change is the NSA had for a long time been conducting what we've come to call about searches, that is searches in the database of content that was about somebody, but neither to nor from that selector, and uh, they uh, gave it up earlier this year because they found themselves unable to comply with the FISA court's restrictions. And that um, self-abnegating decision that was based on a technological inability will now, if this were to become law, become a codified uh, and a, and a, prohibition. And a dumb one, too. Uh, uh, there, There is valuable intelligence in about collection. And to say, because we can't, because we can't construct a database uh, uh, system that will guarantee that nobody can ever search this except under the, uh, the right conditions. Because we can't do it today, we're never going to be allowed to, to, to uh, gather that information. That just is wrong. It, it, it is bad policy, but truthfully, it's good politics. Yeah, the right? politics the NSA having yes. given it up right, and said, <clears throat> we can survive without it, at least right now, you know, Yes, there it's sort of a, an easy shot for the judiciary. Michael, any any thoughts on this one? No, I think the uh well I I should say yes. Um <laughs> I think because of the reasons Paul alluded to that that this bill would set up uh somewhat of a discrepancy between searches of the database for uh criminal investigations versus those for for foreign intelligence investigations. I think there's there's merit to the um Proposals by some on the Senate side in particular that would go even uh, further and require a judge to approve a search, even if it's for um, foreign intelligence purposes, if it involves a U.S. person. Um, I don't think we've seen that in legislation yet, but that is what some are are um, pushing for. That would be a nightmare, I think. Uh, and so, it, as, as Paul said, uh, at the end of the day, this turned out to be a relatively modest proposal. Right. Uh, what Michael has suggested uh, and some of the Senate uh, Democrats are, are thinking about would be not modest at all. 
and it would be a very significant change in how we conduct um, uh, uh, counterintelligence investigations. So there's a, there's, a, there's a second area of intelligence scandal that is sort of brewing just below the surface, as far as I can tell, it, that, by, by which I mean it's been printed in BuzzFeed but hasn't made it into uh, uh, some of the other uh, uh, um, uh, periodicals. Uh, um, a fight between two parts of the Treasury's intelligence uh, and sanctions arm um, in which there are accusations of uh, uh, misuse or improper spying on Americans. Uh, uh, NSA was dragged into it more or less uh, by the scruff of its neck by somebody who just wanted uh, to uh, raise the temperature of the debate. Uh, but it looks like, a, and, and Brian, maybe you can help me on this, it looks as though this is ultimately a turf fight between FinCEN, which is the traditional longstanding regulator of uh, uh, suspicious activity reports, recipient of those, uh, a law enforcement agency that uh, was repurposed to do terrorist finance after 9-11, uh, and the Office of Intelligence and Assessment, which is uh, its sister, uh, all of this under Seagal Mandelker, um, a, which is a more intelligence focused. It's sort of like uh, INR at uh, State. It, it does a lot of analysis and very little collection by itself. Um, uh, but apparently there was a turf fight at the end of o the Obama administration in which chunks of FinCEN were moved over to OIA and FinCEN hit the roof, started crying foul, claimed that uh, civil liberties were at stake and terrible things were going to happen if it lost its turf fight. Uh, uh, and then also accusations that uh, people's access to the database was being cut off improperly as retaliation for this. Uh, it's a very nasty fight, um, and I'm surprised that uh, uh, it's gotten as out of control as it is. Yeah, I think this is this is not a Trump thing or an Obama thing or a Bush thing. This is really a, a good old-fashioned bureaucratic struggle in which the bureaucrats uh, and and look the, the the head of FinCEN at least, and I think the head of OIA both in the uh, uh, Obama administration have left. So if you're looking for people who are talking to the press, you might start with people who've already left because they remember. It's uh, what they used to say about the Ancien Regime, right? They uh, <laughs> uh, they remembered everything and had learned nothing. Um, that they uh, uh, are carrying on their turf fight after departure. But maybe I'm wrong about that. <laughs> well, yeah, in, in full disclosure, I used to be the lawyer who advised both of these parts of the Treasury Department as well. well so that must have been, that I'm not going to really talk fun. about any laundry that may have been uh, dirty while I was there on this issue. But I think you, you have two parts of the of Treasury, as you said, Stuart, who have different missions, who both believe they're doing God's work in defending their interests. So FinCEN defends the BSA and the program of uh, banks filing suspicious activity reports. OIA is an intelligence agency. Uh, and they have uh, different missions. Uh, FinCEN sees itself as a steward and a protector to some extent of BSA information. 
OIA sees its mission as informing the intelligence community about financial wrongdoing. Uh, and so they, it's almost natural that these two parts of Treasury come into conflict. And the argument from Fins, the FinCEN side is OIA is part of the intelligence community. Intelligence agencies aren't supposed to uh, be accessing information about Americans. The Bank Secrecy Act, uh, FinCEN suspicious activity reports are all about Americans. And so what the hell is OIA doing wandering barefoot through their files? Yeah, and of course, the, the truth is not quite as interesting as that when, you know, on the American issue under Executive Order 12333, all of the intelligence community agencies have to have minimization procedures in mm-hmm. place to access uh, uh, U.S. person data. Treasury has had draft uh, instructions in place for years because they're so small, it's hard for them to get the in- attention of the intelligence community, but they, they operate pursuant to Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think I remember this. Uh, uh, DHS had that problem. It, it has exactly. to, they all have to be approved by the attorney general who always has something better to do. That's, that's, uh, pretty much it. And then on the FinCEN side, there are rules in the BSA and the Bank Secrecy Act about how and when to share, uh, but the BSA was amended in the 9-11 era to make it clear that the intelligence community is an appropriate consumer of SARS, at least in some circumstances. Okay. Everybody should go take a shower. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Irish court has now sent the standards, co- standard contract uh, clause litigation over data protection and access and U.S. companies uh, to the European Court of Justice, which uh, has distinguished itself for an unrelievedly dim view of everything American in the last five years. Uh, um, uh, Michael, uh, uh, what do we know about this referral? What does it mean? Uh, th- this is a long-awaited Irish court decision, which feels a little anticlimactic. Well, but it's uh, completely unsurprising. Um, you know, we've known uh, since the time the ECJ uh, struck down the, the safe harbor mechanism that the, the alternate mechanism for transferring data to the U.S., the, the standard or, or model contract clauses that many, many companies use, uh, suffered from the same logical vulnerability as the, the safe harbor, uh, by which I mean if if the premise of the ECJ's ruling striking down safe harbor was that there was, you know, there was too much, um, uh, just broad scale sweeping access to data by U.S. intelligence agencies, uh, without, without any, um, uh, restrictions or sufficient restrictions. The same thing applies to data that, that is transferred under, uh, uh, the model contract clauses. Yeah, or any other of the, really all of the clauses that allow, uh, uh, transfer to the U.S., uh, since none of them can do anything about U.S. law and the U.S. uh, government's powers, they're, uh, they're all at at risk of the same analysis. Yes, uh, except arguably, um, uh, the consent of the data subject. Uh, if the, if the person at least understands how, um, sweeping U.S. Uh, agencies, authorities are. So this has been something that's been been a long time coming. Uh, it's now been the question has been referred from the Irish court to the ECJ since the, it's really up to the ECJ to determine whether um, transfers under the the standard contract clauses uh, comport with with EU law. Um, you know, it, it, we're now going to have a period of a long period of uncertainty because it takes a while for the ECJ to decide anything. And I think the the interesting thing to watch will be whether the European Commission takes some sort of uh, peremptory action in, in the meantime to um, to strengthen 
the argument that that transfers under the model contract clauses are are legitimate. And they might. They, they're 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 looking like they want to salvage this because they've always liked this as a stick to keep in the closet and never liked the idea of actually trying to hit somebody with it or hit the U.S. with it because uh, the, it, they'll end up regretting it. So um, it, the way the ECJ opinion is or uh, past holdings are playing out, they might actually have to try to stop data flows, which will uh, um, be a very ugly experience, mainly for Europe. Yeah, I, I, I think they'll do whatever they can to, to avoid that happening. It's just, you know, nothing happens quickly. Uh, over there. So I think in the meantime, companies are going to be worried about um, how they should proceed. Well, especially with GDPR coming and uh, 4% of gross uh, global revenue fines possible. Uh, so could be ugly. Uh, I will repeat again, uh, uh, and everybody who's afraid of this decision should be uh, um, sending us plaintiffs. Uh, I will, on a pro bono basis, bring lawsuits uh, uh, challenging the adequacy of Chinese law, law, Saudi law, Algerian law, all the top ten uh, um, uh, export markets of the uh, uh, European Union, because uh, none of them meet the standards of the United States or the ECJ. Uh, and uh, once they realize that, they're just going to have to change their law, which would be good for everybody. All right. Uh, Kaspersky, speaking of Russia, <laughs> Kaspersky, oh, this is so sad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, he, crocodile tears dropped well, from your eyes. You know, I, 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 Kaspersky's a nice guy. Uh, there's the, the story is this. He's suggesting that uh, Kaspersky antivirus was at the heart of discovering that Yet another uh, um, employee or contractor for the National Security Agency took home a bunch of tools to work on. Uh, and uh, since they were all malware and he had installed Kaspersky because, you know, he was cheap and it was free uh, on his system, Kaspersky said, whoa, malware on his system and alerted the main um, uh, uh, database uh, to the possibility there's a whole bunch of new malware. And one way or another, the, for, the, the FSB figured that out uh, and stole all of his stuff. Exactly how involved Kaspersky was, nobody's saying, but it certainly doesn't sound good for him. Uh, and this certainly explains why suddenly we're issuing orders saying we're in the United States government and Best Buy is uh, uh, taking it off the shelves. Exactly. I, it actually almost doesn't matter whether Kaspersky is a willing collaborator with the FSB oh, or a um, or simply a, a kind of uh, uh, unwitting victim whose, whose databasing has been penetrated. Either way, frankly, any non-Russian actor who uses Kaspersky antivirus uh, might as well just mail um, their source code to the FSB and say, have at it, guys. Um, you know, it is, uh, it is, I think, the death knell for the company. It'll be a well, wild dying, yeah. but, it, but it'll be at least in the free West. I, 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 I can't help thinking that even Kaspersky has sort of come to that conclusion because their latest report is – uh, just coincidentally, I'm sure, 
a report that says, hey, look at this. When the Russians spy on somebody, somebody else sneaks in and spies on them. And when the Chinese spy on somebody, somebody sneaks in and spies on them and collects everything that they're collecting. wonder who that could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and here's how, it, how we found it out. So uh, my guess is that they've kind of given up on uh, um, uh, the idea that the U.S. government will ever forgive them. Stuart, if I could just pitch in uh, just two things. One, it it underscores the extraordinary um, tendency of human beings, even those well-trained and the like, to be points of weaknesses. Uh, But then second, um, I think it raises and should raise uh, fundamental questions about antiviral software generally, which we know uh, we're privileging in extraordinary ways. And then... uh, which has large numbers of vulnerabilities as well as the hitchhiker problem that you described. So in one sense, this is a Kaspersky story, but in another sense, it's an antiviral story. I I think you're right. Antivirus has always had to be privileged. It's got to get between the uh, operating system often and the, the... uh, the metal of the machine. It's, it uh, breaks a lot of uh, uh, encryption so as to inspect things. Um, and uh, it o- offers an enormous attack surface that people have demonstrated isn't well protected, uh, ironically. Uh, um, and, and it reports back. Yes, and now it's it, it, as as the it's gone to the second and third generation. Everybody has built-in sensors so that they're collecting data from all all of the machines that they have stuff uh, uh, installed on, so that they can quickly react to any new malware that they see and pump it out. But you know, you're basically privileging somebody you never heard of uh, to install sensors on your machine and to look at everything going in and out. Uh, yeah. You know, you really better trust them. Can I just hop on another point that the Secretary Danzig mentioned, which is uh, what is wrong with NSA's complete inability to identify insider threats? So, I mean, so I, 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 mean I, yeah. I, I don't – we haven't learned the mechanisms yet, but the idea that a contractor – can, without being detected, um, export, uh, you know, data, uh, 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 critical data of new malware that is under development to his personal computer without anybody noticing. I mean, we went down that road five years ago now with Chelsea Manning, right. aka Bradley Manning. Uh, there are lots of great off-the-shelf insider threat prediction programs out there that <coughs> are imperfect at best, but but a lot better than uh, than doing nothing i i yeah. i do not understand how this continues to be so radical a problem for the nsa and it's a real failure on their part and this explains why the obama administration actually dinged admiral rogers and thought about relieving him mm-hmm. uh, is they said another damn uh, uh, event uh, what are you doing over there yeah i think that 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 was the the problem i will say uh, when I was at NSA, people took stuff home to work on because they wanted to do a good job. Uh, and then it, they would be prosecuted for typically misdemeanors, uh, mishandling of data and fired. Uh, um, and now the stakes are much higher. Uh, but uh, this this guy seems to have been somebody who was just trying to do his job on Ab- hours. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but yeah. how is it that there's no... 
alarm that uh, that alerts when thumb when drive, he, thumb drive, thumb yeah, drive. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. When when something like that happens, I mean, even if you think that profiles and and an analysis about behavior only really works for the malicious, not for the yeah. not for the foolish. There've got to be some hardwired red lines about the fool that catch the foolish as well. I, I think it, it probably is the case that uh, there are circumstances where you have to move a lot of tools, uh, and so it, it will not be a rule that says you can never do this, but it certainly can be a rule that said you must uh, do it under supervision, etc. Three people, yeah. three man key. Yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, I... Who are the questionable people? The second is observation, is something bad uh, happening? A third is rules and the rules of the road. Of those, uh, I'm most skeptical about prediction in general. Um, but the observational capacity should be a lot better. And, uh, the, I mean, we're deal, the, the singular aspect of these systems is that they're computers, which is to say they're observable. Indeed, what's bothering us is that Kaspersky could observe this. So you would think NSA would be more effective in that regard. They said about Snowden, no, it was Hawaii. Things hadn't yet reached that place and so on. But this is not Hawaii and this is 2017, as you're saying. Yeah. All right. Um, the United States Trade Representative has weighed in pretty um, dramatically. He didn't bring a case in the WTO over China's uh, cyber <coughs> law, but he's um, strongly suggesting that that could be the outcome eventually. Uh, uh, Brian, did you take a look at what he had to say? Yeah, uh, so late September, the USTR filed a communication in the Council for Trade and Services, which is one of the committees of the WTO, uh, expressing many of the concerns that your listeners are going to be familiar with, with China's cybersecurity law, lack of definitions, the apparent overbreadth, not being sure what the law meant, means, but in the context of China's WTO obligations, which basically are to allow for free competition on services of the type that U.S. companies are trying to provide who are now trying to figure out what to do about this law. Uh, and so, as you said, Stuart, uh, this type of communication is something that could lead to a WTO challenge down the road. It kind of warns other members of the WTO and China itself that the U.S. sees this as a possibility. Okay, so I, well, not completely surprising, certainly consistent with the uh, um the president's general views about uh, wanting to get tougher. And uh, frankly, and my guess is uh, most U.S. companies that do business in China would say, yeah, right on. Uh, not a lot of uh, enthusiasm for this law or really um, much of a China lobby left in the United States because uh, apart from Apple, uh, very few people are making a lot of money there. It also maybe gives U.S. industry a little bit of a ground to stand on when they're trying to figure out what to do to comply because they can't wait around for the WTO challenge. Of course, they're there on the ground right now, and if they're figuring out where they can kind of uh, come to compromises, uh, this gives them maybe a little bit of a backbone to say, well, our U.S. has also expressed pretty serious concerns about the law. So practically every story we talked about, Richard, uh plays one way or another into the papers that you've been writing recently on uh, technology and um, uh, national security strategy. Um, can you give us kind of a quick overview of where your thinking is going these days and what you're uh, producing? 
Sure. Um, I think what animates me is what's animating everybody else. We're all responding to the sort of gravitational pull of uh, some reality here. Uh, and that reality, uh, if I can mix metaphors, is the technology tsunami. What's striking to me is most of us tend to be very engaged in one particular part of it, the IT world or the biology world or robotics or space. Um, but in trying to think about the way the national security establishment absorbs these technologies, how it responds to them, what the net effects are on our national security, uh, you need, I think, to grasp the whole range, and that means uh, recognizing that you're not going to have in-depth expertise about any one technology, but that there are some commonalities to all of them. And basically, uh, that's where I'm trying to work, doing papers that are not public for the government, but also periodically getting permission to publish some. Mm-hmm. So, I see some consist some some um, consistencies in new technology, and I, I guess I would say also there's a there's been a change in the American attitude toward technology, which was at one time. Undiluted enthusiasm, mm-hmm. uh, right? It's 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 going to make for a great new life, uh, and it's going to make for a great new set of weapons. Uh, and um, DoD just said, uh, if it's new technology, we want it, and we'll figure out how to use it in warfare. And by and large, that has been pretty good for the U.S. military. But I I think they are. Starting to wonder if that's true. My guess is that that's the cyber experience mm-hmm. in, in, in large part. Maybe some of the experience with trying to figure out how they would defend against chemical weapons, you know, serious binary chemical weapons, uh, uh, in fighting with, uh, uh Iraq. Uh, um, but there is a, uh, there is a lack of enthusiasm or an awareness of the downside that has penetrated DOD. Yeah, I, I, I'd uh, just make three quick observations. One is that there's uh, uh, all these technologies carry with them both extraordinary uh, goodness and extraordinary problems. Um, when I published a piece a few years ago on cybersecurity, I called it poison fruit. You mm-hmm. can't uh, not eat it. You need the nutrition, but you need to know how to live on a diet of poison fruit. A second phenomenon is that this uh, ambivalence that you describe, I think, uh, really occurs historically in the context of all technologies. Um, I had occasion recently to go back, coincidentally, and look at what happened when uh, balloons, the idea of flying in uh, mm-hmm. heated gas, uh, as a result of heated gas, um, came in in the 1780s, and people's observations about it are exhi- exhibit exactly the phenomenon that you describe. Uh, they really bifurcate, and they have fantasies about the extraordinary power that ballooning will have. It will replace the, the uh, coach in going from village to village. Um, it will enable the French to invade Britain because the English Channel is no longer significant. <laughs> And then on the flip side, the difficulties that some people have in seeing the technology. There's a wonderful statement uh, where somebody says to Ben Franklin, oh, I see this, it's exciting, but what good is it? And Ben Franklin says, what good is a newborn baby? Uh, and it's all these technologies are newborn babies that we're, we're coming to discover. Um, finally, I'd say... Uh, we're, I'm particularly pressing in these papers that you mentioned, one that I uh, made public in Lawfare as a working document recently, 
the risks associated with accidents arising from these kinds of things, um, the ways in which uh, emergent effects from the interactions of technologies may produce consequences we haven't uh, anticipated, so that as we pursue superiority technologically, we actually also are breeding insecurity from the risks of accidents, emergent effects, and the democratization we all understand, the proliferation. So I had to look this up, but emergent uh, effects are basically um, when you can take like three or four rules of behavior and program them into little uh, robots and get remarkably uh, uh, complicated and sophisticated and unexpected uh, uh, behavior. Maybe for the good, often not. I'm, I must say I'm delighted at the idea that you had to look something up. It never occurred to me before. Um, the, uh, climate change is an example of an emergent effect. We generate all these systems for good purposes, economic and uh, uh, consumption systems, etc. Um, and then they have consequences in another realm, climate, that we hadn't really thought about. Um, when we put, for example, IT systems alongside one another and give them some substantial capabilities to evolve, uh, they produce effects we didn't anticipate. Um, for example, uh, computers engaged in high-speed trading um, begin to invent their own language. There are papers on this oh, yeah. for uh, connecting with one another. This is an emergent effect in the sense that it's an interactive effect we hadn't anticipated. It may be that the... And we got the flash crash out of at least one of those. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it may be that uh, in the context of the accidents in the Navy and Straits of Hormuz, we may be seeing something like that because the container ship technology and the Navy ship technologies haven't well integrated with one another and to together between them produce an emergent effect, an accident that we hadn't envisioned. So your thought is uh, uh, accidents are sort of obvious. You, you, yeah. No one understands exactly how the technology works because it's brand new. Uh, and uh, uh, we had Kevin Kelly on here, and he yeah, basically right. said, uh, look, get used to it. You will always be a noob. Uh, because yeah. the technology will move faster than you can incorporate it. There will always be new pieces of technology that just were introduced that you haven't learned how to swipe left or right. You know, which way is it going again? Uh, and, uh, uh, that produces accidents. Uh, emergent effects is more, um, stuff just starts happening that you had no idea, uh, it would happen. And it's not an accident. It's just, you know, this is a completely unanticipated, uh, and almost self-starting, uh, phenomenon. I'm not sure what source you went to to look it up, but I think you well understand it. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I, what's, uh, this is an interesting approach because it's basically saying that we should be spending some of our, you know, careful, uh, and, uh, some of our, uh, scarce, strategic resources at DOD thinking not about our adversaries, but just about how we might screw up or how the technology might uh, uh, betray us in some Absolutely fashion. Absolutely right. Uh, so this is not novel in dealing with technologies. It harks back to some of our best traditions. When we introduce nuclear weapons, we spend a lot of time making sure that 
they are not uh, accidentally discharged and that they're well controlled and the like. Navy nuclear submarining is another example where we were extraordinarily accident averse. But here we're beginning to deal with problems that are another order of magnitude more complicated. First, because our adversaries also have these, and because these systems interact. The cyber stuff we're talking about is an exemplary of that. Um, but also because these systems are evolving. So the Kevin Kelly proposition is not just, oh, along comes uh, the next model of the iPhone. It's that actually the AI system is evolving, for example, in ways that are opaque to us. Biological systems have this characteristic also. Uh, yeah, they ain't nothing more autonomous than uh, bioweapon. Huh? Right. And there's a reason we tend to borrow vocabulary like virus. Um, but the biologists are struggling to try and evolve not only accident prevention mechanisms, which we can talk about, but also norms and rules of procedure. And they are in some respects analogous to the AI world, that, uh, which is struggling in its own realm. And there are other examples of this space, for example. Can I, I, I this, I, this is a, this is not just a DOD problem, obviously. Uh, yes. But I have almost no confidence in self-regulatory uh, activity, particularly on the part of, of, of academics uh, who always find a reason why they're above regulation. Uh, but uh, if it's contrary to the, reputational and career interests of the person who has control of the technology or who's using the technology, um, the incentive to ignore uh, or delay the imposition of norms is enormous, and the incentive to impose them or to enforce them is pretty modest in a uh, a, a world where there's no law behind it, no regulatory right. um, uh, uh, coercion behind it. Everything you say I think is right, but it doesn't bring me sufficiently to the position that I think you have. Um, uh, I think these things can be meaningful even though they don't provide the comfort that you describe, um, that you, you crave. So they're better than nothing. But that's significant. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so let's take a concrete example. Uh, President Obama and Xi Jinping agree that they won't attack each other's uh, infrastructure, civilian infrastructure like power grids, with cyber means in peacetime. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might reasonably say, what's going to enforce this, et cetera? If we in China get to bare knuckles, maybe the Chinese will attack our power grid. I'd observe, though, that the uh, if I'm Xi Jinping and somebody comes to me and says, I've got a great idea, we're in this situation of tension, let's attack the power grid, it's a higher bar that they're going to have to clear to persuade me to do that because I can see that the consequences of my doing it will be greater than they would have been if there hadn't been this norm. Um, so uh, I'm with you. There's, to me, they're a bit like fire breaks, and you could come along and rightly say, ah, oh, there's so many ways the fire can jump the break. There are. Uh, but on balance, I'll have fewer fires if I have fire breaks. So, I, fair enough. I, you know, my, it is my view that the Obama administration in particular was bedazzled by the idea mm-hmm. of norms and spent too much time pursuing norms for the the value that it got out it's not that they're they're useless they're just uh uh modest uh, in value in the absence of an ability to enforce them now in the yeah. example you gave uh, the, the enforcement mechanism would be the united states government say didn't we 
goddamn well tell you what we were going to do, that we would take this very badly if you did it. Uh, mm-hmm. Now the war is going to get considerably warmer as a result. So we're getting closer to, to the common ground here. I just would make the observation. Think about nuclear weaponry and its use. We have a de facto norm against that. Mm-hmm. There are any number of occasions on which, for example, the United States might have usefully used a tactical nuclear weapon, but breaking that norm was... Uh, very much avoided, partly because we recognize that the norm had some power against others who might do it against us, and we valued that fire break. So I think there, are, it's not just uh, red lines. Okay, so I I I I I, I buy that. I it's because nukes are spooky taboo weapons, right? Right, uh, but every, that's a norm. But how, yes, I agree. Yeah. How many spooky taboo weapons can we actually have? There is nothing spooky or taboo about cyber weapons, right? Well, right. So I'm I'm content for the moment to see you give a little ground, okay. um, more I, than I usually <laughs> succeed in extracting. So, <laughs> Brian, jump in if you want to. What? Yeah, particularly if if you want to make comments about a moderator. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Uh, before you came, we announced that he was going to create bobbleheads. Yeah, I um, yes. Well, I, I actually did have a question, um, and I wanted to know, uh, uh, without having had the benefit of having to read the second of your papers, right. um, is there is there also a sense in which of the throughput of technology into modern society, which is to say, it, it's now. These problems seem to be arising, or the technology seem to be propagating into vast arrays of consumer uh, behavior in ways that uh, even uh, balloons didn't. Or, or <laughs> I mean, cars have become that, but mm-hmm. but initially they were very very small. Or maybe it's not just the scaling of it, but the pace of the scaling of it, which is that we leap from creation to pervasiveness iPhones are 10 years old, right? right? right. And now 93% of Americans have it or yeah, something like you're that. You're right. So- no invention in history proliferated as uh, the second is the Internet. Um, and there are examples of what you're describing. Uh, I, think it's I, I should company. say, as an Android user, you meant smartphone. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I did. You're right. Um, so I can give ground to you, too. Um, the point you're raising is... Uh, it's a cluster of things, as I think we realize. The speed phenomenon interests me a lot. I've talked with a number of people who I respect a lot who do not think what I think and what seems to me to be obvious, which is that the speed of technology innovation is accelerating. Uh, and Kurzweil and others have put this in very dramatic terms. I don't have to be as dramatic as that. Um, but uh, And some people reasonably say, oh, it's, it's the Dickens' best of times, worst of times. Imagine you live in 1890 or 1920. Technology is booming all around you and so forth. But I think what's happening is that there's a reaction, a phenomenon that the chemists would call autocatalytic. Um, it feeds on itself. Mm-hmm. The IT enhances the biology and enhances the IT, etc. We're also seeing rises in world literacy and longevity and human health and total numbers of people. Capital markets have uh, developed much further and the like. And all these things contribute to what I call the technology tsunami. 
So then the interesting question is, I think really the most important question is, what do you do about it? And that's what I'm grappling with. And I come up with a variety of imperfect means, which uh, then Stewart and others rightly criticize. Well, you know, look, it, it, I, I, I give you credit for not just admiring the problem. Right. You, mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. proposals for things we ought to be doing. And you focused mm-hmm. on DOD uh, yep. and said, DOD, if I remember right, DOD ought to spend time evaluating for emergent risk and accident risk uh, its new technology systems. Uh, and it ought to spend time talking about those risks, not just with its allies, but with its adversaries. Uh, so let me give a couple of examples. that uh, I've spoken with uh, the some of the key research uh, agencies, and uh, I think very talented head of IARPA, Jason Matheny, um, took this as some stimulus and evolved six questions uh, or so that he put to his researchers when they proposed new projects. And those questions relate to if this technology proliferates and others use this against us, what will we do and is this a desirable step in that context? How do we safeguard now? Uh, DARPA has developed a safe gene project, uh, which is designed to raise questions about how can we do gene DNA research in ways that reduce the risk that if it escapes into the wild, we'd be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. There are a number of things like this that can be done, and uh, uh, the inventors of Stuxnet um, created a termination date. That's a very important uh, thing to do. So I'm urging more of these kinds of efforts. It does remind me that the, the, the... Russians are reputed to have said in some, uh, you know, over a beer at some cybersecurity conference that we can always attribute uh, uh, U.S. cyber weapons because they look like they were designed by lawyers. <laughs> and, and, well, for and, this audience, we take that as high praise. Right? <laughs> high praise, indeed. But, but building in these kinds of things are something that the U.S. is much more likely to do than um, a, the... Uh, uh, the macho uh, generals. Yes, you raise uh, an Russia. absolutely fundamental point. And in, uh, the, this also raises technology issues more generally. In the lawfare paper, I raise the question, suppose the uh, another country, uh, uh, you can pick your country, uh, starts to select uh, from amongst embryos based on intelligence. Um, do we respond to that? And can we, if we think this is antithetic to our values, can we afford to let other people do it? And, of course, these issues arise a million times over in other technologies. Yeah, I, but I think you're right. We're likely to see it in uh, bio sooner than in others. Uh, although, you know, uh, playing with uh, evolving AI without, you know, constraining what it might do to humans when it passes the singularity is also scary as hell. Uh, and uh, But I, I, I'm guessing that the idea of designer babies is going to have enormous appeal for authoritarian regimes. Yeah. Uh, one of the statistics that interests me is just a small sidelight is there are 10,000 babies born in the United States every day. 200 of them were conceived in test tubes. We've adjusted rather quickly to a yep. different uh, context. But one of the things, again, that I raise in the in the lawfare paper is um, we have very clear as lawyers notions of doctrine relating to free speech. But I think we're going to see a lot of rather explosive issues about free bodies. How much can I do? Uh, abortion is a sort of a harbinger of this debate. How much control do I have? 
Yeah, and my guess is that uh, the people who don't want to have government control them will borrow lock, stock, and barrel that uh, that entire ideology. It's it's the woman's body. It's the woman's fetus. She can do what she wants. Uh, who the hell are you, you retrograde, knuckle-dragging right. conservative, to tell her anything else? Right. Uh, so here I've just mentioned test tube babies. Um, how many uh, – suppose I've got three embryos. And uh, only one of them uh, will be embedded in me. Um, I could have a DNA analysis done of those three and should to determine whether one might have a, a gene defect that would cause some bad disease. But you can pick the smartest one, too. But now I can start to pick the smartest one, as you say. Um, do you think the authoritarians will pick the smartest, or will they pick the most docile? Well, it's absolutely a good question. Well, Kim uh, Jong Un will pick the yeah, uh, yeah, the, the most, smart, the best basketball smart players. Is generally <laughs> inconsistent with docility, um, as as the participants in this call suggest uh, <laughs> by their example. Um, I, I, uh, one of the things that I feel strongly about is the unpredictability of all of this. Everything that I'm describing is a sort of analysis of one direction and one vector. Um, but there are a lot of competing vectors, and what happens out of this, I don't know. I think, though, we have an obligation to try and think about influencing some particular strands in this evolution. So let me let, I, I, go to the one other, uh, since we're off on authoritarian regimes, um, I- issue that you talked about in the first paper, which is that obviously this technology empowers small groups, individuals in many ways, or at least empowers them to the extent of being able to kill uh, 50 or 60 people at a rock concert in six minutes, uh, uh, and much worse uh, uh, to come. Um, and at the same time, it's taking away people's privacy. It does seem to me that there's an obvious um, connection there, that, that the, uh, taking away the privacy of the individual may be our only defense about the ter- against the terrible things that we're going to enable uh, individuals to do. But that produces a very different society than the one we all grew up in. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um... There's, a, I think, uh, an early paper by Marty Schubach at Yale in the 90s in which he plotted the number of people an individual could kill over time historically and showed that rising curve as more and more people could be killed by an individual. And we obviously see this in the context of groups. For a long time, a lot of us have worried about biological terrorism, particularly in this context, because it opens up opportunities for mass killing. If uh, the Unabomber had been a biologist instead of a mathematician and manufactured pathogens instead of pipe bombs, I think the consequences would have been a lot graver. Um, so we're kind of overdue on this one. Right? But this connects to our earlier connect, uh, conversation about NSA and observation. You could, for example, uh, have sequencers always reporting how they were used in biology and synthetic uh, synthesizers yes. so that um, when particular combinations of uh, genetic code uh, were being created that were, for example, connected with anthrax, um, it got reported. Now, there are ways around these things. We all know both with hacking and with individual things, but there are possibilities in these arenas for observation. But if the default is that uh, when you're when you're building the gene, you insert watermarks uh, right. that tells right. you just just right. as uh, uh, color copying machines, which can be used for um, counterfeiting, counterfeiting, 
also contain in them codes that can be read uh, by people who want to know what machine produced it. Uh, so, yeah, you could certainly do that. And, of course, it could be defeated by a nation state or a very well-organized group. But it would cut down on the number of people who could pull that off uh, without getting caught. Now you are singing the same tune I was offering with respect to norms. Of course, it can be, uh, you can get around the fire break, but that fire break is worth something. Um, I think both of us would say you don't even need to be a nation state to get around these things. Um, and skilled individuals, this is why I offer the Unabomber example. You recollect he's a Harvard trained assistant mm -hmm. professor of math. Skilled individuals who are at the tail of the curve of stability, uh, that is, they're very unstable. Um, represent a big risk to us, uh, and then terrorist groups are particularly troublesome in these contexts. And then I note, with the nation states, there's more stability, but the risks of these emergent effects um, are, I think, quite great. When you launch a cyber attack, most of the time, the biggest problem you've got is figuring out just where it's going to go and how, a anticipating what its consequences will right. be. Um, and that just underscores the the challenges of these new technologies that we're talking about. Okay. I, I, let me dust off my one I, idea that uh, has gotten zero traction in the 10 years since I proposed it, but uh, I'm hoping you'll like it, uh, uh, which is that uh, um, the, the one business and career uh, incentive that everybody in the new biology has is making sure that they can get a patent on their devices and uh, uh, and their genes uh, and uh, or at least the uh, uh, the research that they've done and that means they need a patent in the United States and we could we could say you can't get a patent for something like that in the United States unless you demonstrate that for the last five years you've met basic biosafety and maybe biosecurity roles I think it's a good idea. Uh, I think it's a, a valuable contribution. Hopefully, advertising it in this podcast will transform yes, your experience. That's my plan. <laughs> I just would note that, as with any good idea, it has, as you point out in the context of other ideas, all kinds of limitations. Oh, yes. Other governments, militaries, do not typically apply for U.S. patents. You know, and, the Cubans uh, have applied for multiple biological patents in the United States. Yeah, actually, the, there was a time when the U.S. Army used to routinely patent its uh, instruments of biological warfare. Right. Um, put that aside, that I think we understand each other on this. The other, uh, though, is that increasingly entities will not patent on the theory that they want to retain their skills in terms of art and the like. But, uh, yes, I think this is a good idea, and I think we need more ideas like this. All right. Uh, Richard Danzig, uh, Michael Vadis, Brian Egan, thank you all for uh, uh, participating. Uh, uh, this has been episode – and, and Paul Rosenzweig. I apologize, <laughs> Paul. Uh, I uh, just walked right, walked right over you. Um, this has been episode 183. You will get a, uh, a bobblehead on top of the, uh, the mug. Uh, I can't wait. All right. Right. Uh, episode 183 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, don't forget, if you want a, uh, uh, a mug, uh, uh, send us a, a suggestion for an interviewee. And if they join us on the show, we will send you the mug. Uh, uh, if you've got the suggestions, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Coming up, we've got Martin Mikos of HackerOne talking about uh, bounty programs. Uh, Mike Sulmeyer of the Belfer Center's Cybersecurity <coughs> Project talking about hacking back, David Ignatius of the Washington Post, 
talking about his brand new thriller, uh, uh, among other guests. Uh, so mark your calendars also for November 7th when you'll cu- get to come see us and determine whether, in fact, I am a proper candidate for a bobblehead. Uh, we'll be having an afternoon, uh, evening uh, special episode uh, on election cybersecurity on Election Day uh, here in our DuPont Circle offices. You can register on uh, the Steptoe.com website if you if you like, and we hope we'll see you there and uh, that you'll listen to future episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.